Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday, August the 8th, 2023. It is currently 1019 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where I am 19 minutes late for a very important date. Okay, well, I don't know. Is it is it a very important date? No, I'm 19 minutes late. I promised you late last night that by 10 a.m. this morning, I wanted to be live on the air bringing this sermon review to a dramatic conclusion. I always want that dramatic conclusion, and so many times in our sermon reviews, it doesn't end with a dramatic conclusion. Have you noticed that? So many times in these sermon reviews, when we get to the end... At least for me, I'm always a little bit disappointed or a little bit frustrated because sometimes it starts off and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so good. We're going to, we're going to learn this or we're going to be able to point this out. And then when it's over, you're kind of like, well, that was three hours of, I mean, because basically every sermon review is three hours of broadcasting. Like anytime I choose to do a sermon review, if the sermon is between 40, if it's between 40 minutes and 50 minutes or between 40 minutes and longer, that's three hours of broadcasting. That's basically how it, it works out. And that's a lot of work. That's a lot of effort. That's a lot of time that I could be doing anything else. So sometimes when I get to the end of it, at least for me, I'm like, ah, oh, was that worth three plus hours of my life? Was that worth it? Was it worth three plus hours of the listener's life listening to that? Sometimes I think we do point out some very interesting things. Sometimes I think the sermons themselves give us some very good. I think sometimes it, it does end in a, in a decent way. I just, I've yet to find one that ends in a, maybe there's been a couple that I think we really, wow, that, okay, that ended. And maybe dramatic. It ended in a dramatic way. It was just a dramatic train wreck. It was a dramatic disaster. Does that count as a, I guess I, I'm thinking of a dramatic conclusion as something more positive. Sometimes it does end in a spectacularly bad way. You're like, what was that? That was horrible. I do believe sometimes. I do believe sometimes it ends that way. I don't know how this one is going to end, to be honest with you. I don't know how this one is going to end. I'm a little concerned how this one is going to end because it's just been, from the very start of this sermon review, it's just felt like, ah, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And, I, and I'm doing it because I I, I trapped myself. I... I I said I would, and then I had no, I could not back out. Now, of course, I could have backed out because 99% of the people listening would have not, probably don't even remember that I said it in the first place. But remember how this all started. J.D. Greer preached a sermon. In that sermon, he rebukes the members of his church in a very severe and strong way for showing up to church late and leaving early. People on the internet, as they so do, took a very small section, maybe less than a minute, maybe about 30 seconds, maybe a minute, maybe maybe 58 seconds. It's a very short section. They clipped it out of the 45-minute sermon. 
They, of course, then posted it on the internet. And then, of course, everyone, because you know how Christians are, we are so loving and compassionate and mercy and we're so non-judgmental. Of course, who am I kidding? You post it online and everyone's like, boom, J.D. Greer's a heretic. J.D. Greer couldn't preach if he, if you gave him directions. J.D. Greer wouldn't know the Bible if you put it in front of him. J.D., why is J.D. Greer rebuking anybody? He is the one who destroyed sermons having any meaning. And boom, 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 boom. How dare he talk to people that way? What? And it just everyone, of course, everyone had an opinion because, you know, Christians think that their opinion is, you know, I don't know, everything. So all of a sudden it was attack, 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 destroy, 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 opinion, 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 opinion. And you know my feelings on that entire game of ripping a, a small section of a sermon out of its context, posting it on internet so that everyone can attack and bash and give their opinion, I guess to make themselves look better. I hate that because it's not fair. I don't care who the preacher is. I don't care if it's someone from Bethel. I don't care if it's Joel Osteen. I don't care if it's Joyce Meyer. I don't care if, I don't care who the person is. No matter how much I may despise their theology, the person deserves to be heard in the full context and then critiqued because of everything they said. Then the critique should be done correctly. Like you shouldn't be, I've seen some Stephen Furtick, you know, sermon clips where people are attacking him for the clothes he's wearing or it just, it's just, so, it's so like childhood playground bully mentality that many Christians demonstrate uh, uh, online. I hate that. So whoever they are, they deserve the whole sermon to be heard. And then you critique it, hopefully, on the most biblical and theological basis as you can, uh, trying to avoid the personal attacks and trying to avoid some of that to the best of your ability. I mean, we're all human. We're all sinners. We're going to do this. But at least that's what we should strive to do, right? Is to show some level of even love for our enemy and some kind of respect. Now, there are sometimes when you attack and you criticize a sermon, people will still get upset and still get offended. But I think when you post your sermons online, then obviously people are going to have an opinion on them. And that's okay. You, you can, you can critique hopefully in a, in a godly way. That doesn't mean you pull any punches. It doesn't mean you can't be blunt. I mean, we've been reviewing this sermon by JD Greer. So, so what ultimately happened? As the clip was out there, I'm getting ahead of myself. The clip was out there. And of course, what I did was I played the clip and then we just kind of took the clip and talked about just in general how people act in church. All right. Because I wanted to get it away from J.D. Greer and just look more at the issue because I don't know what J.D. Greer was trying to say because there's no context. But then I promised everyone, hey, guys. I'm going to review the entire sermon because it's only fair. It's only fair that J.D. Greer is hurt. While everyone else is running around commenting on a, you know, a viral video clip, at least the listeners of my podcast, at least the listeners of my podcast can critique and offer an opinion based on hearing the entire sermon. It was also frustrating that a lot of the people who were posting these things, if I would ask them, so where's the full sermon? They would just not, they would ignore me. They wouldn't respond to me. And I didn't like that. It's like, if you're going to post it, then give everyone the full sermon so that people can go hear the full context. Because what we've seen sometimes is when we listen to the full context, guess what? First, sometimes you're like, well, 
that's not really what he was trying to say. I think you're missing the point. And secondly, sometimes when you hear the full, the full context, the real theological problems are being ignored and people are just looking for some little thing to generate controversy. Sometimes the real issue is earlier in the sermon or later in the sermon. So we, we started reviewing the entire sermon by J.D. Greer. It's a sermon on James chapter 2. It's a sermon dealing with a specific sin. And the sin is not showing up to church late or, or leaving church early. The sin that the sermon is about is the sin of partiality. The sin of showing partiality that within the church, we should not be showing partiality to those who are rich or disdain for those who are poor. We should treat people equally because we are to love everyone. We are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and that this sin of partiality is wrong. But we make these judgments and we we make these presuppositions based on people's education or where they're from or what they look. And he went in hard. There was some very convicting parts of the sermon. And I hope and what I I hope from our review is that everyone is taking time to look into their own heart, their own life and go, am I guilty of the sin of partiality? That's what I really want people to gain from this so far, right? That's what I want. Now, the frustrating part is as good of lesson as that is, that's such a good lesson. That's something we should all really consider. We should be convicted by. Ah, This is the frustrating part. In the sermon, though, some really weird things started kind of happening. He really kind of created a situation where he's basically saying, hey, you shouldn't be partial towards the rich because basically rich people aren't very good. They're sinners. And it's the rich people who are not at church on Sunday. They're out playing golf or it's the poor people who go to church. It's the rich people who, you know, won't, do this or do that. Like basically rich people are not sin are, are sinful. So you shouldn't show partiality to them. Well, I, and he tries to take some of this from James too. And I kind of understand what's trying to be said, but you've got to be careful because the issue is there are poor people not at church. There are poor people who don't believe in God. There are rich people who don't believe in God. Like you can find because rich or poor were all depraved sinners. Right. The issue is not the money you possess. It's listen. The issue isn't the money you possess. It's the depravity, which is yours by nature. Now that depravity may then utilize riches and may be drawn to those riches and it will pull them further and further away from God. There, you can make an argument about that, but some people's poverty, their depravity, their depravity will then use that poverty to say, well, why would I believe in a God who doesn't care about me and look at all the horrible things I've suffered? Like, I think it could go either direction. And you may find some biblical examples of where maybe riches was a detriment, but I, I just did not kind of like that approach. And the main reason I didn't like that approach is because J.D. Greer himself, his net worth is somewhere between $1 million and $5 million. So it was odd that the rich man is telling people you should not show partiality to the rich because the rich are the ones not in church, but the pastor of their church, by any reasonable standard, would be considered rich. So that, that whole thing was just weird to me. And I felt, I felt that it was acceptable to at least point that out because he didn't say, well, hey, 
Not all people who are rich are like this. Now, I think he, I think he tried to offer a little bit of, of, of kind of pulling back a little bit, but he could have just been very transparent with the audience. Hey guys, your pastor is pretty rich. I'm pretty wealthy. You know, but because, well, he is. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's a public fact. It's all, it's all over the internet. So that was just weird. That was just weird. So we tried to deal with that. And, and I understand he was using some of James to try to prove this. And then the sermon turned into, once again, another glaring example of the American church obliterating the proper distinction between law and gospel. I mean, to me, everyone is taking this one clip of him rebuking everyone and going, look at, look what J.D. Greer said, and everyone's losing their minds. I'm more concerned with the obliteration of law and gospel in the sermon because he does what Christians do constantly. And it goes something like this. Yes, you're supposedly saved by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. Yes, you're supposedly saved by an imputed righteousness. Yes, Christ paid for all of your sins. However... However, wait, 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 wait. Read the fine print. You may be saved by what Christ did for you, but if you don't do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z, if you don't do all of that, then it proves you were never saved, meaning you have to do this in order to be saved. Somehow, your actions prove that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to your account. Well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because actions cannot prove that impute, that righteousness has been imputed to your account. It was imputed to you. It wasn't infused in you. You're declared to be that which you are not. You're declared to be righteous, but you're not actually righteous in practice. You're declared to be a new creature. The old is gone, all is new, but that is not true in practice. That is true in you in Christ, because in Christ, his righteousness is yours, his obedience is yours, right? So he does the same thing everyone else does. Hey, 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 how do you know you've received the mercy of God? You'll be merciful. Guess what? If you're not merciful enough, you prove that you never got mercy, Therefore, you don't get mercy. So if you want to prove that you've received the mercy of God, you've got to demonstrate mercy. If you fail to demonstrate mercy, then you demonstrate you never received God's mercy. Meaning that you have to constantly ask yourself, am I been merciful enough? And what if you've been merciful externally, but you haven't been that merciful internally? Are you, are, did you prove that you're saved? And how, again, once again, it's using the law to try to prove whether you're saved or not saved. The law cannot be used to prove if someone is saved. The law's job is to condemn you. So you take the law and it says, do this. You got to be merciful. You got to turn the other cheek. You got to love your enemy. And you'll look at all of that. And the law is going to show you that you don't do these things anywhere close to the right way or consistently and that you fall short continually so that you are condemned. So then you say, well, what do you do with all of these scriptures that demand it? You do the only thing you can do. Christ did all of those things for me, and by faith, his obedience is imputed to me, so I do those things in Christ, therefore I fulfill the law in Christ, and because of an imputed righteousness. J.D. Greer just ignores all of that and turns it into, hey, 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 you may not be saved unless you do this. Hey, you may not be saved unless you do this. Hey, you may not be saved unless you do this. Hey, you may not be saved unless you do this. 
So that's kind of where we are in the review. I know that's 15 minutes trying to put it all back together. But now we've got just basically 23 minutes left. And we're going to try to go through this. I know this may take long, a little longer than I wanted. I wanted this to be short this morning. But I want to put this all together so that we can try to bring this to some kind of dramatic conclusion. So this is what I want you to do. First, I really want you to consider and meditate on the sin of partiality and how you may be guilty of it. I want you to consider how you may not show mercy to others clear, uh, uh, compared to the mercy that you've been given. I want you to consider how you don't forgive people in the way in which you have been forgiven. And I want you to be convicted by that. And I want you to know that only in Christ is there any hope of 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 you ever doing any of those things. So you have to rely on the imputed righteousness of Christ. But we should feel guilty about these things and move out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us to become people who are not guilty of the sin of partiality, to become people who are full of mercy because of the mercy we have received, to be people of forgiveness because of the forgiveness we have received. So I want something good to come from all of this. But we're going to listen to him. He's going to do a little bit of that, what I just kind of described, obliterate law and gospel. And then at some point, he's going to get to the clip. He's going to get to the section that went viral. And we're going to, I still don't know, we're rebuking the people for showing up to church late or leaving early. I don't know what this has to do with James chapter 2. So I've got my suspicions of maybe what happened, but I'm not going to say because until I hear it, I won't know for sure. But when we hear it in the fuller context, maybe we'll get some idea. All right. So, but are you ready? Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. This is the dramatic conclusion of the sermon by J.D. Greer on James chapter 2. Let's see what happens. What James is saying is not that we earn God's mercy by showing mercy. Listen, he's actually saying the flip of that. Follow me, okay? Lean in. James means that the evidence that we have experienced mercy is that we show it. If you really have received God's mercy, you can't help but show it to others. It is impossible, James says. Okay, this is the standard evangelical American church approach to this. Hey, 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 you don't get mercy by being merciful. But if you actually receive mercy, you will be merciful. And if you're not merciful, then you never received mercy. So you have to constantly look around and go, wait a minute, am I, am I showing mercy enough? Am I showing, oh, no, 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 I don't think I was merciful enough here. Well, I'm probably, I'm probably not saved. I'm probably not saved. I'm probably not saved. And the point is, though, the scriptures seem, what, what always happens in these situations, they water it down. And first they say, look, if you don't show mercy, it's an evidence that you never, you never received mercy. And then someone will be like, okay, well, I don't, am I merciful enough? Well, no, no, you don't have to do it perfectly. You just have to do it some. What? No, the law demands you do it perfectly. So you can't come water it down. If, if you forgive, you will be forgiven. That's law. The law demands you forgive perfectly. Then you will be forgiven. Well, you will never do so. So guess what? You're going to be condemned. What is your only hope? By faith in Christ Jesus, because he forgave. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He forgave perfectly. So in Christ, 
forgive or you are uh, to be forgiven, you can say, in Christ, I do forgive, therefore I'm forgiven. Christ fulfills the law on your behalf. Now, after you are completely then secure in your salvation because you know Christ did it for you, then you can say, well, because I have been forgiven, then yes, I should strive to be as forgiving as Christ has been to me. I'm going to fall short, but that's what I should strive to. But what we turn it into is, no, 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 this proves if you're saved. Well, if you say it proves you're saved, you're using the law to prove your salvation. And not only that, that if you're going to prove you're saved, you have to do it perfectly because that's what the law demands. And you can't water it down. You can't say, no, 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 no. You don't have to do it perfectly. You just have to, you have to just be trying No, the law doesn't demand trying. The law demands perfection. And therefore, you will always be condemned unless you're relying on the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is such, this is why we've spent 90 plus hours working on the subject of law and gospel. That's why I think that series is the most important because this obliteration of law and gospel is everyday affair in the American church. To have any true awareness of the gospel and remain a judging, unforgiving, locked up person. And if you are a judging, unforgiving, prejudiced person, the only explanation is that you have not really received mercy or at least for real with any significant experience of it. I think the best place that Jesus made this parable, made made this point was in the parable that he told about the man who was forgiven 10,000 talents, which is my favorite of his parables, which is why you hear it from me about every six months. Basically, you got a man in court with a debt of 10,000 talents that he owes to this other man, this loan shark. I've told- now, before he goes into this parable, let me just once again, just demonstrate, like, like, look at how the scriptures say it. James 2, verse 13, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. It's like, no, you have to be merciful or you're going to receive a judgment with no mercy. Well, then you should be like, woe is me. I am undone because I don't know if I'll ever be merciful enough. And and he says, Christians who are judgmental and show no mercy, prove they're not saved. Well, then you're going to be throwing out the church. Basically, you're going to be throwing out everyone out of the kingdom of God because Christians constantly are judgmental, condemning, show no mercy, show no grace. The church has been filled with this. You know why? Because listen, even though you've received the mercy of God, he did not eradicate your old nature and your old nature by nature is not merciful. It may be merciful to yourself. It's not merciful to others. Your nature is judgmental. Maybe not so much to yourself, but to others. Your nature is condemning of others. Maybe not be so condemning of yourself. That is the natural way you operate. So it's something we have to battle against. But if you're looking to see if you're forgiving and merciful and not judgmental to prove your salvation, you're going to live in a, if you're even remotely honest with yourself, you're going to be in a perpetual state of, well, I don't know if I'm saved. And I will say, 
Don't look to yourself. Don't look to the imperfection of your actions to prove eternal salvation. Look to the perfect actions of the eternal Savior to prove your eternal salvation. The church always says, look to your actions to prove that you're saved. And I will say, no, I'm going to look to the finished work of Christ to know that I'm saved. My security doesn't come from me passing some checklist of, oh, if I do this and if I do that. My security comes from, you can give me your checklist and I'm going to hand it to Christ. And you know what Christ is going to say to you? Done. Finished. I've done everything on your checklist. Therefore, he is saved because by faith, my obedience has been imputed to him. Not infused, imputed. I know in some ways I feel like we keep saying this over and over and over, but we have to keep saying it over and over and over because every sermon continues to preach a gospel that is really nothing more than law pretending to be gospel. It is horrible. It is devastating. And I have to continue to point this out, which makes these sermon reviews last forever. I told you this before, but a talent was equivalent to about 20 years of labor for the average worker. That means in your whole lifetime, your whole lifetime, you might earn maybe two or three talents. This man owes 10,000, 5,000 lifetimes of work. 10,000 was the nicest number you would count to in Greek. So when you said 10,000, it was like saying a gazillion dollars. Point is, it's a debt he can never repay. Well, the day the debt's due, this man's now in court. In those days, you couldn't pay your debt. Then you went to prison, not just you, but your kids. And if by the time you died, you hadn't paid your debt off, they stayed in, in prison, in debtor's prison, which usually meant enslavement to the family you owed the money to. This man now overwhelmed, not just at his prospects, but the prospects of his family. Does something that I'm sure was common, but was awkward all the same. He falls down on his knees in this courtroom and he says, please, sir, I don't have this money, but please don't put me and my children in, in slavery. Please give me one more week, he asked for, just one more week and I'll pay you back every penny, which is ridiculous. I mean, the man owes 5,000 lifetimes of work. He's not gonna pay it off in a week. You can imagine at this point in the story, everybody's kind of shuffling their feet, looking around, because this is awkward. Because this guy that loans other people money doesn't get into the position he's in by being a softy, a pushover. What we today we don't what do we call them? We don't call them loan puppies, loan bunnies, loan sharks. If you don't pay your money, they bring a baseball bat to your doorstep and they you know break your kneecap, that kind of person. But all of a sudden in this story, this man feels an emotion. Nobody's expecting it's called compassion. He gets a tear in his eye and a quiver in his voice, and he I don't we don't know why he didn't even say it's just unexpected, and all of a sudden he looks at this man and says, No, 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 no. You don't have another week to pay me back. Because as of right now, this moment, your entire debt is forgiven. All of it. Gone. Nobody can believe it. Certainly not the man who's been forgiven. And they're like, he's like, what just happened? And he stands up and for the first time and who knows how long, he feels as light as air. He walks out across the street. He's kind of dazed. When suddenly in Jesus' story, a man crosses the street toward him who owes him two dollars. For a Mountain Dew that he borrowed the week before. And this guy suddenly snaps back into reality. He's like, hey, where's my $2? Just been forgiven, you know, a gazillion dollars. He's now asking for two. And the guy says, man, I'm sorry. I don't have any cash. I mean, it's been a hard week. I'll get, I'll hit you next week. I promise. No. If you don't have my $2 right now, I'm taking you to court and you're going to debtor's prison. 
Now, at this point in the story, when Jesus told that, his hearers would have said, no way. Come on, man. I thought you were telling a true story. There's no way that somebody who just got forgiven a gazillion dollars would hold somebody else accountable for a dollar fifty. And Jesus is like, exactly, exactly. In the same way, there is no way you could receive the kind of mercy that God gave you in forgiving your sins and then withhold mercy from others. There's no way that you could experience that kind of generosity and not be moved to give to those around you in need. Now, I just want to show you how law-based that parable is. That this parable is, is again, I know this is turning into our law and gospel series. This is not what we, we wanted to just get to J.D. Greer, you know, rebuking his church because it went viral. But this is turning into, hey guys, this is another episode of our ongoing series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. That parable is found in Matthew chapter 18. All right. So look what happens. Matthew chapter 18, verse 32. So after this man is forgiven, he goes out, his debt is forgiven. So then he goes after another guy and says, Hey, hey, you better pay me or hey, I'm going to, I'm going to cast you into prison, right? To pay the debt. First, so look at verse 31, Matthew 18, 31, because he didn't, he didn't read the end of this story. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then the Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all thy debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I've had pity on thee and his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Those are the words of the law. Now you're going to pay everything. Now just remember, this parable has been used by some to prove purgatory. This parable has been used by some to prove you can lose your salvation. And it's been used by some to say, no, 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 no. You, You don't, this, this is what, this is to be used to test your salvation, to prove whether you're saved or not. And so they argue, if you've been forgiven, if you don't show mercy and you don't forgive others, then it proves you were never saved. All three of those approaches miss the point. This is law. Every person who hears this should go, oh man, I deserve to be cast into prison and to be tormented until I pay my debt because I don't forgive the way I'm supposed to forgive. I don't have mercy the way I'm supposed to have mercy. Lord, woe is me. I am undone. And then you realize your only hope is Christ says, but I do forgive completely. I forgive completely. So therefore, in me, you are merciful and you do forgive. In fact, look at the next verse here. Look at the very next verse. This is so law, Matthew 18, 35. So likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you, if you from your heart forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. See, the law does not say you have to try. It doesn't say as long as you're going in the right direction, the law says you must do it perfectly. You must forgive everyone as you have been forgiven. Any deviation, you are condemned. You are to be thrown into prison until you pay your debt. 
Every person who hears this sermon or parable, every person who reads that should be like, well, then I'm going to hell. Do you, have you forgiven every person? Truly forgave them? Not only externally, but externally, you can say, I forgive you, brother. I, you're, I, I, you know, it's all good. And internally, there's still a little bitterness. You hear something bad happen to them and you're kind of like, yeah, they deserved it. Oh, I hope something bad. Internally, there are thoughts and feelings that demonstrate you have not let them go. You're either seeking revenge or you're hoping for some. You know there are people you have not truly forgiven. You know there's people you've not truly let go. You know there are people you have not shown mercy to. Well, then this parable would say you're going to hell or others would say this proves this proves either you lost your salvation or you're going to purgatory or this proves you were never saved in the first place. Who can live under that? That is placing you back under the law. Now, what you should do is like, I should do this, Christ. I should be forgiving. I should be merciful, uh, but I, I am not. Please forgive me, Lord, for my failure. And Christ says, I did it for you. By faith, my righteousness is imputed to you and credited to your account. So before me, you stand as someone who does forgive perfectly. So you will not be cast into prison. Now, that's mercy. Now, out of that gratitude, yes, you should try to become every week, month, year more forgiving and more merciful. But everyone turns this into somehow, this proves your salvation. But then they water it down because they say, well, I mean, you don't have to do it perfectly. No, the law demands perfection. This is another God, this is another law based parable. This is another law based message. Matthew is filled with law. The entire Sermon on the Mount is law, 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 law. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It demands perfection. You can't do it. Ever. Christ did. There's no way, no way to believe that God received you when you were an outcast and then look down on or show prejudice towards somebody else. The fact that you are like that means that you've probably never experienced the gospel. See, what's the proof that you've experienced the gospel? Your actions. No, the proof of my salvation is not my actions. The proof of my salvation is the actions of the eternal son of God and his actions were perfect, complete, and he finished it. And his finished work is imputed to me. Why would you want me to look to my failed attempt to keep God's law of demanding that I show mercy and that I forgive others as I have been forgiven because I will only see my failure. See, that's what James is actually saying right here. That's what James is saying. Last week to the middle schoolers, I described it like being hit with a, I, I said, right, here's why I'll just tell you the little story I told. I was like, imagine that I was late getting up here to speak at camp. Where's JD? Nobody knows where JD is. Suddenly my car pulls up outside the worship center, screeches to a halt. I hop out. I run up on stage. I'm like, oh, y'all, I'm so sorry. Man, I did not mean to be late. I was looking forward to this, but Veronica and I were driving up here and on the way up here, 
our car had a flat tire right there on, on inter, I-64, whatever it is up there. Uh, right there, right there in the middle of the road, we had a flat tire. I got out and started changing the tire and I was taking the lug nuts off and one of those lug nuts rolled across the road. Uh, so I went out to get it and I reached down to pick it up. And right as I reached down to pick it up, I heard this loud horn. I look up, y'all, there's a tractor trailer coming at me going 75 miles an hour. Just hit me square. Probably not me 300 yards. And I skidded to a halt. And that tractor trailer slammed on his brakes and then just ran over me. I guess he didn't know what happened because he put it in reverse and ran over me again, backed over me. Y'all, that hurt. It took me a minute. I got up though and I found that lug nut and I put the tire back on the car and I drove straight here and that's why I'm late. And I asked all those middle schoolers, I'm like, what would you say if I said that? And they were like, we would say you were lying. Because there's no way, there's just no way you could get hit by that kind of force and stay the same. If you really got hit by a tractor trailer going 75 miles an hour, you'd look different. You'd walk different, you'd talk different, smell different, everything about you would be different at this point. What James is saying is those who genuinely encounter mercy, they become merciful. Now, again, the only problem with his illustration is you're talking about something happening physically. You're being hit by something physically. Boom. That's going to then mess you up, right? The problem is when we are hit, quote unquote, with God's mercy, it does not eradicate our sinful nature. The sinful nature remains in place. And as long as the sinful nature remains in place, what will flow out of us over and over and over is judgmental, hatred, partiality, condemning, narcissist, selfishness, self-seeking, self-worship, hatred, wrath. All of those things flow out of our sinful nature because we still possess it. So you can't tell someone, hey, if you've truly received God's mercy, you're going to be the most merciful person. You're going to, we, we demonstrate over and over how much we do not do those things. We fall short. And again, it's not just that you will do them better. The law demands you do them perfectly. And so from one angle, you can say that only those who show mercy toward others should expect it from God. Because if you don't show mercy, there's no way you really could have experienced it. The text says, if you don't show mercy, you don't get it. Don't reword it. Don't flip it around. The text says, if you don't show it, you don't get it. Or if we go back to the parable, if we go back to the parable, I'm going to read, I'm going to read the, the verse exactly as it is found. Uh, it's Matthew 18, Matthew 18, verse 20 or 35. Uh, so likewise, uh, my hev- uh, so likewise shall my uh, heavenly father do also unto you. If you from your heart forgive not everyone, his brother, their trespasses. If you don't forgive everyone perfectly, you're going to be thrown into prison until you pay the debt. If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. If you do not show mercy, you get no mercy. That's what the law, do. don't flip it around and say, no, 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 no. If you don't do this, then it possibly proves that you never got it. No, it says you must do it in order to get it. 
Don't rewrite the law. Let the law say what the law says. And then your response should be, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean hands. I'm a man of an unclean heart. I do not forgive. I do not love my enemy. I do not show mercy. I show partiality. I am judgmental and I'm condemning. Lord, what is wrong with me? Save me. And God says, in Christ Jesus, He's done all of that for you. He did it perfectly. And by faith, his righteousness will be given to you and accredited to your account. And then you should be, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And then you should strive to be loving and merciful. Not to prove your salvation because it would never be good enough to prove it. But out of gratitude for what has been done for you. And then every time you see these passages, which demands perfection, you should once again see how far short you still fall, even after 30 years of being a Christian. The little indicator light that you have received mercy is that you become merciful. Jesus repeated this theme often in the gospels, and it's why some of what he says confuses you. He taught us to pray, for example, forgive us our debts as... We forgive our debtors. In other words, we can expect God's forgiveness in similar measure to how we forgive others. Because again, it's not that we're earning God's forgiveness. It's that the sign we've received the mercy of the gospel is that we show the mercy of the gospel. He keeps flipping it around. You have to forgive in order to be forgiven. That's the law's demands. It's only met in Christ. Showing mercy and receiving others in mercy is the indicator light you've experienced the gospel. Take a look at that last line. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In this context, that phrase means that on the final day, let's watch this, your acts of mercy will triumph over judgment. In this context, that That's scary. On the day of judgment, your acts of mercy will triumph over judgment? No, in the day of judgment, God's mercy will triumph over judgment. God's mercy, because in Christ, I am merciful as the law demands me to be. That phrase does not mean that on the last final day, God's mercy will triumph over judgment in his heart. His mercy triumphs over judgment. No. It's that your mercy will triumph over his judgment of you because your acts of mercy will demonstrate that you understood the gospel and you received it. That is absolutely frightening. No, no, no. It's not his mercy. Your mercy will triumph over his judgment because your mercy will prove that you've received mercy. My actions are going to be the thing that triumphs over judgment. He literally said it's going to be my actions that triumph over God's judgment. That is the most frightening. Uh, uh, that, that, that's just Roman Catholicism, ladies and gentlemen. This is just go, the Reformation is over. Luther lost. The Reformation failed. Catholicism triumphed. The only thing we threw out is we wanted to be the Pope, but we still wanted Roman Catholic theology. He just said, your mercy will triumph over God's judgment. Your actions will never triumph over God's judgment because God's judgment is righteous, holy, and it is perfect. It demands perfection. 
The only thing that can triumph over God's judgment is the mercy of God that is given to you. It's God, it's Christ completed works given to you. Uh, someone in the comment just said, in similar me- measure, that was confusing because either I'm forgiven or I'm not. Exactly. He's like, well, in, in, in similar measure, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven in the same way. Well, then I'm going to be up the creek because I'm never going to do it completely right. And so, no, either I'm forgiven or I'm not forgiven. But this is just frightening. Your mercy that you give is what's going to triumph over God's judgment. Your actions are going to triumph over God's judgment. I, 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 I am just... I'm telling you, this is such Roman Catholic. I mean, I, I, as someone who went to school to get a degree, to pursue a degree in Roman Catholic theology, this is just straight up infused righteousness mindset. And this is what the, some of the early confessions uh, out of the Reformation argued against. We are not justified because of an infused righteousness, but because of an imputed righteousness. Look at the London Baptist, the Westminster Confession. This is just, I'm, I'm just trying to give you straight historical biblical Christianity. James gives us law. This is what God demands. And you're like, well, then what am I going to do? Someone has to meet the demands for you. Which mercy will triumph over God's judgment? It has to be the mercy given. And if it's going to be based off the mercy that is done practically, then it's got to be the mercy Jesus demonstrated. Jesus showed mercy. Well, in Christ, His demonstration of that mercy is imputed to me. Yeah, uh, someone just said, um, I agree. That comment is frightening. And I would would even so uh, unrested sitting listening to that. Yeah, I would be unsettled. I would would be scared to death listening to that. But the people in the pew just like, well, see, praise God. My mercy is going to triumph over God's judgment because I'm such a merciful person. Look at me. And everyone's going to walk out there built up in their own self-righteousness. Very few people will sit there and go, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're telling me the only way I'm going to withstand God's judgment is I have to have enough mercy that I've demonstrated that it will be sufficient to triumph over God's judgment. See, this is the part that should have went viral. Why is everyone worried about him rebuking his people? This is the part of the sermon that everyone should have been like, Oh my goodness, did you hear what J.D. Greer said? He just said, your your demonstration of mercy is going to be the thing that triumphs over God's judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a works-based, that's not even gospel. This is so law-based, it's not even funny. If you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive. If you want mercy, you have to be merciful. Lord, forgive me. I'm not going to do these things. Christ did them for you. Put your faith in him. Someone just said, which is actually frightening as well. The fact that to, to be well under this, you have to believe you meet the demands. Exactly. Yeah. To, to believe this, to go to this kind of church, you have to believe that you do it, which makes you a self-righteous 
person. It makes you think that you're better than you are. Nobody in that church meets the stand. Nobody in that church, their mercy will never triumph God's judgment. You know why? Because they would have to show perfect mercy. They would have to forgive perfectly. We never show mercy perfectly. We never forgive perfectly. Therefore, we would be condemned. Now, am I saying, don't worry about being a merciful person? No, 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 no. You should be convicted that you're not merciful. Am I saying, don't, don't worry about forgiving others? No, you should be convicted that there isn't forgiveness in your heart. You should be, and we should strive, but we should realize that it's only in Christ that we meet this standard. Your mercy triumphs over God's judgment. How that did not go viral, I will never understand. I will never understand. See, once again, this is a situation where everyone's over here going, look, 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 look. He's talking about showing up to church late. How dare he? Well, in the meantime, the sermon has utter total philological poison in it. He just literally destroyed the gospel. He just literally destroyed the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. He literally, he just, it's, it's over. This may be the greatest sermon to use to show how the evangelical church no longer understands the proper distinction between law and gospel. When this started, I had no idea that this was going to basically, that we should just put all of these sermon reviews in the long gospel series. It's really where all of this belongs at this point. When this started out, I just wanted to go, why was J.D. Greer so upset with his church? Why was he so mad? Now I'm going, I think J.D. Greer has abandoned the gospel. In fact, I think J.D. Greer should just probably return to Rome because he would be very comfortable with an infused righteous mentality and that your actions have to measure up enough to be able to survive God's judgment. Or you may have to go to purgatory to pay for where where you fall short. I mean, he doesn't believe in purgatory, but just as well throw that in the mix. He literally said, your mercy, your acts of mercy is what's going to triumph over God's judgment. Not his mercy, your mercy. That I, man, alive. I, I, all right, I've got to keep listening. Okay, I know we've done a lot of, I know we, I backed it up too far and I know I'm repeating a lot, but I cannot express to you how this is just frightening. By the way, that is not original with James. James picked this principle up from his half-brother Jesus. Matthew 25, Jesus said that on judgment day, he will separate the sheep from the goats. And in this particular judgment scene, everybody present believes the same thing. They all confess Jesus is Lord. But he divides that group of believers into the sheep and the goats, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. In fact, stay right where you are in James. We'll come right back to you. But let me just walk you through this passage real fast. Verse 34, Jesus says, then the king will say to those on his right, to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father. And here the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him. Lord, when do we see you hungry? 
When were you on earth and we fed you? When were you thirsty? We gave you drink. When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? When were you naked and we clothed you and in prison and we visited you and the king will answer them. Truly I say unto you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. Now, the way he's handling this text, these are all believers. Who gets in? Those who do good. Those who go to hell? Those who didn't do good enough. Your belief is not sufficient. Now, he's going to say, no, 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 no. Your actions prove that you believe. He's going to flip it around, but you're still saying the same thing. You're just playing a little game of semantics. No, you don't do this in order to be saved, but if I don't do it, I'm not saved. Therefore, I have to do it. So how much of these actions must you do in order to supposedly prove you're saved? How much of this do you have to do in order to prove you're saved? Just a little bit? Just some? I know atheists who on the weekends, on a consistent basis, in Ohio, go out. These are people who are atheists, maybe part of the LGBTQ community, and they go out every weekend. They get together and they make meals for the homeless. They go out every weekend feeding the homeless, feeding the poor. They are not Christians. They are LGBTQ. They, they, they are not Christians. Now, you may have some Christians go down and yell at people that they're going to go to hell. They may be yelling at the LGBTQ people. You're going to burn in hell while they're out feeding the homeless. I have intimate knowledge of this situation. Because I happen to be related to one of the people who go down there every weekend and they will either ask, hey, we're going to be going down. Anybody want to contribute some money to help pay for what we're going to be doing this weekend? And then they send pictures showing. (laughs) So how does this exactly work? Where are the Christians down there? That I don't run into like there's so many churches and Christian groups down there feeding the homeless. No, they don't see that. So then, are you saying all those people who don't go down are, how do you, how do you work this? Now, I say, well, first of all, we'd have to say, what judgment is this? Now, we can get into a whole discussion because now, is there only one judgment? Are there multiple judgments? Is this a separate judgment determining something separate? Because it's very much a works-based judgment. And then you'll realize, well, all the judgments seems that we're going to be judged according to our works. Well, then what am I going to do? You're going to be condemned and go to hell. So, What's your hope? Christ did the works for you. Christ did the work for you. And in Christ, you meet all of the standard, all of the works that are required. But he's going to use this. You can believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. You got to be doing these things. And is he going to tell you how much of the, how many of these things you need to do? Is he going to tell you how much of this must be present in your life? And let me ask you, come on. Do you do these things on a regular, consistent basis? And if you don't, I guess you prove you were never saved. I was a stranger. You didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. And sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they also will answer him and say, 
Lord, when did we miss doing all those things? I mean, we would have done it for you if we knew it was you. And he'll respond by saying, truly, I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. I want you to let this settle in, Summit. According to Jesus, look, the only difference between the sheep and the goats was what they did and did not do. The only difference between us and the lost is what we do and do not do. Not that we're covered in the, not, not, not that we have the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us, but what we do. This is the most works based, law based message I think maybe I have ever heard in a, well, that I've heard in a very, 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 very long time. This is so, this is so insane. Anyone listening to this should be like, well, then I'm going to hell. They were not separated according to what they believed. They were not separated based on who prayed a prayer and who got baptized. They all believed the same thing. They'd all prayed the prayer. They'd all been baptized. The difference between the sheep and the goats was whether their understanding of the gospel produced tangible acts of mercy in them. Your salvation is dependent on what you do. If you don't do, now he's going to say, no, 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 you don't get saved because you do the acts of mercy, but you prove that you're saved if you do the acts of mercy. Again, I'm just, I'm so tired of that little semantics game. You're saying the same thing. You're saying, if you don't do this, you're not saved. He just turned salvation completely into a workspace system. There's just no, there's not even playing games with this. It's completely workspace. What you do, what you do, what you do, what you do, what you, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter if you prayed. It doesn't, no, what it matters is what you do and you must do acts of mercy. And if you don't do enough acts of mercy, you prove you're never saved. So you're going to burn in hell. What a great, beautiful message. So comforting. It brings rest to the weary. It gives hope to the hopeless. It fixes the broken. It makes them whole again. Because all you need to do today is stop worrying about what you're worrying. And you better get out there and find some pers- people to show mercy to. You must be doing acts of mercy. Oh, that sounds very Roman Catholic. You must be engaged in acts of mercy. Sometimes you're told to go do that when you go to confession. You need to do some acts of mercy. So you need to go do acts of mercy. How many acts of mercy do you got currently in your bank account, your spiritual bank account? Because I'm telling you, when judgment comes, if you don't have enough acts of mercy, you can't pay the bill that is due in judgment. You have to have enough acts of mercy to pay the bill due on the day of judgment. If not, you go to hell. Who cares what Christ did for you? Because it's irrelevant. What Christ did is irrelevant. It's what you do. You triumph God's judgment based on your mercy. I cannot believe what we are hearing. Why? I can't believe that everyone that, that, that the, what everyone on social media is yelling and screaming about is not what they should be yelling and screaming about. It's the sermon itself. Again, I want to be super clear. It's not that their acts of mercy earn salvation. Salvation is a free gift that we only receive by faith. But
It's a free gift. But anytime someone says it's a free gift, but the minute they say, but they just canceled out the free gift. It's free, but you have to pay us $19.99. Hey, this podcast is free, but I'm going to put it behind a paywall and you can get access to it for $19.99. But it's free, ladies and gentlemen. It's free, but, 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 but if you don't do this and this and this, you prove you never got the free gift. So I got to prove that I got the free gift by what I do. But the free gift that I got was an imputed righteousness. So how can I prove by what I do that I got an imputed righteousness? Because it's imputed. It's something that's accredited to my account. It wasn't infused in me. So how can I prove imputed righteousness by action? By very definition, I can't prove the imputed righteousness. Because it's not my righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. It's not my obedience. It's his. But I get to stand there like I am perfectly righteous and obedient, even though I am not. That's literally what the entire Protestant Reformation was about. He's literally taking us back prior to the Reformation. He wants us to go right back to Roman Catholicism. Martin Luther would hear this and be like, Well, I wasted my time. Obviously, the entire Protestant Reformation was an abysmal failure. Their acts of mercy demonstrated they'd experienced salvation. So on judgment day, their acts of mercy triumphed over God's judgment. Their Their acts of mercy triumphed over God's judgment. If you ever think that you can do enough good to triumph over God's judgment. May God have mercy on you. One, because you are so delusional and arrogant that you could even think that. God's judgment demands absolute perfection. All of your acts of mercy combined are nothing more than filthy rags before a holy, righteous God. Your hope isn't that your acts of mercy will triumph over God's judgment. It's the fact that Christ acts of mercy, that Christ acts of obedience will fulfill God's demands for the law to be fulfilled and that he paid for the fact that you didn't. of mercy demonstrated that they'd understood it and embraced the gospel. So here's the question. It's obvious. You ready for it? What if we evaluated your belief in the gospel solely by how generous you were? What if we evaluated your belief in the gospel solely by how non-judgmental you were, how accepting you were, and how you treated the poor? Now, I know some of you are going to get overwhelmed right now. Just because you have relapses in this or you're inconsistent with this doesn't mean you're not saved. In fact, in- <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to see me have a complete and total meltdown. You're going to see me probably, ju- I'm going to just start throwing things. I'm going to just start yelling and screaming. I am so sick of this. You take God's law, which demands perfection. You then say your actions are going to triumph over God's judgment. And then all of a sudden you backtrack and go, I mean, you're not going to do this perfectly. Well, then how are you going to triumph over God's judgment? (laughs) 
Oh, man. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay. I'm just going to let this play out. We only have 12 minutes left. Wow. See, I wasn't expecting this. I... I... Okay, I gotta let this play out. I'm, I'm literally, I'm, I'm, I'm physically, I'm getting, I'm getting emotional. I'm getting very upset right now because this is such, this is spiritual abuse to do this to people. Your actions are what's going to triumph over God's mercy. That would mean you have to do perfection, and then come on and go. But but but, hey, I know you're getting worried, but I mean, I, you don't have to do it perfectly. Well, then now you're ta- now what you're doing is you're telling that you're telling God what His law demands or doesn't demand. I'm, and I'm going to be blunt, J.D. Greer, you're not God, so keep your hands off His law. His law demands perfection. Don't come and now water it down. Because you now know that you, even yourself, you know inherently deep down that you're like, oh boy, I now just have convinced everyone in this church they're not saved. I now got to reassure them that, hey, okay, I know you don't do it perfectly, but that's okay. Your imperfection is good enough to triumph God's judgment. The minute you tell people their imperfection is good enough to triumph over God's judgment... Man, you've destroyed the holiness of God. You've destroyed the law. You, you, this is. I am, I don't even know what to do. Galatians 2, Paul confronted Peter, the apostle, the leader of the early church, because Peter had started to act in a racist manner. Peter, the leader of the early church, would eat and fellowship with Jews, but not with Gentiles. Oh, wait. I wonder why. Oh, I wonder why Peter would be guilty of this. Because even after conversion, he was still a sinner. Meaning that you need a hermeneutic that understands how to interpret law passages. You're interpreting law passages as, hey, this proves you're saved if you keep the law. Meaning you have to keep the law in order to be saved. And then you come around and say, but but you don't have to do it perfectly because even Peter didn't do it perfectly. Maybe what you should learn is that we never do it perfectly. Therefore, we're always condemned by the law. So then we have to look to, I don't know, an imputed righteousness as the thing that fulfills the demands of the law for us. So all of the passages that demand perfection are only met in what Christ did, not in what we do. And so the thing that triumphs over God's judgment is not our acts, but the finished work of Jesus Christ. I don't know. How about maybe... Oh yeah, the Reformation? I don't know. Maybe what Luther had to say. I don't know. Maybe a good way of understanding scripture is the law demands perfection. We always fall short, but Christ was perfect and met the law for us. And by faith, his righteousness is imputed to us. I don't, maybe basic Christianity? So Paul confronted him publicly and he said, Peter, you are not acting in line with the gospel. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, you're not really saved. We all need renewals to bring our behavior in line with the gospel. So I'm not trying to tell you you're not saved, but I'm just saying the point remains how you treat the poor or how forgiving you are or how accepting you are is the indicator light of whether you understand the gospel. So so now he's trying to back. I'm not trying to say you're not saved. 
Yeah, you know what? Paul Paul didn't tell the Corinthians that they're not saved. Paul didn't tell Peter that he's not saved because your actions don't determine salvation. The finished work of Christ determines salvation. However, your actions may demonstrate that you're carnal. Your actions may demonstrate that you're fleshly. Your actions may demonstrate that you're spiritually immature. Your actions may demonstrate that you're wrong. Your actions may demonstrate that you are spiritually immature and you should be convicted by that and you should cling to the righteousness of Christ imputed to you for your salvation and then be convicted to try to move forward and do things better in your everyday life. That's James's big point. You want to know if you understand the gospel really? It's shown in your generosity of spirit toward people around you, whether that means accepting those who are different, receiving those with troubled past, or sharing resources with those who do not have them. So let's end our time. Let's just end it with a few really, really down-to-earth practical application questions. Okay? In what ways are you personally involved with the poor? That'd be my first one. If Matthew 25 happens tonight, what are you going to hear from Jesus? Let me be clear. If Matthew 25 happens tonight, what are you going to hear from Jesus based on what you do? You know what? If judgment happens tonight, you know what I'm going to hear from Jesus? Well done, thy good and faithful servant. You know why he's going to say that? Because I'm in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus was perfect and obedient. I'm going to hear welcome in because of what Christ did, not because of anything I've done or failed to do. He just turned it into, what are you going to hear on the day of judgment based on what you do? He literally is saying, hey, how when you stand before God, how what are you going to hear? And it's going to be based off what you do. <laughs> Unbelievable. This is insanity. I, I, look, I'm getting ready to make a very, 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 very bold statement. Based off this sermon, I would tell anyone who goes to J.D. Greer Church, your church teaches a false gospel. Therefore, the gospel you are teaching is anathema. It is a works-based gospel. It is not the gospel. It is the law. And it will only lead people to a self-righteous, works-based understanding of salvation that is anathema to the gospel of grace and mercy. It is false. It is heretical. We got some amazing people in our church doing amazing Matthew 25 type ministries with prisoners and unwed mothers and high school dropouts or kids here at the church or students. But I will just tell you as a church, we are not known for this as much as we are known for other things. And we should be known for this. I've been praying about ways that we can up. Wait, your church is not known for this. Oh boy, I guess all the people in your church are not saved. Up our engagement with the poor of our city, which leads to this question we have to ask as a church. My second question, how many of our ministries in the church are focused on those who cannot pay us back? Let me tell you why I phrase it like that. A lot of our ministries and facilities bring people into the church, people with bank accounts and means, and they can help pay our bills. And they are indeed ministries. I'm not taking away from them. But in another sense, having those kinds of ministries 
you business people recognize that just makes good business sense for us. So we have to ask, are we running a business here or do we have ministries toward people who will never be able to pay us back? Over the years, we've talked about the homeless, orphan, prisoner, unwed mother, high school dropout in our city. And we have seen some amazing things happen in each of those areas. That one of the ministries we've invested in the most is the prison ministry. In the last year, some of our members have started some amazing transitional housing and job programs to help restore prisoners to full functioning in society. It's amazing to just watch it happen, watch you guys go with it. We are funding thousands of compassion children around the world um, in refugee centers and places like Ukraine and India. So some of there's some amazing things happening, but honestly, as a church, we have. And I want to make it very clear. All those things that they're doing. Absolutely. Love it. Awesome. Praise God. It's great that you've got the money and the means to do that. That is awesome. 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 I got, I love it. But if you're going to connect that to your salvation, you know what you're doing? You're boasting. And a gospel of grace removes your ability to boast. But a salvation where your actions are going to triumph over God's judgment gives you every reason to boast. Meaning it's no longer a gospel of grace. Because a gospel of grace, a gospel apart from works, leaves you nothing to boast in. A lot of room to grow here. We are praying right now about providing affordable, faith-driven daycare for single working moms in our community, as an example. If you were interested in talking about that, just reach out to us, this email address here, missions at summitchurch.com. But just do something, okay? There are lots of opportunities at your campus where we need people. Email that address and let's get connected. Or maybe God's going to use you to identify the next area that our church needs to engage. One of the ways we've tried to apply this principle is through church planting. Each year, Summit, we give away millions of, millions of dollars to missions and to church plants. And like I've explained to you, those plants rarely benefit us. Right? They're not good for our bottom line in one sense. I mean, like I've told you, um, you know, not, not, one, not one time ever in all the churches we planted has one called me up and been like, hey, we got extra money in our budget left over. We thought we'd give it back to you. I always tell you, church plants are like teenagers. All they want is your money and your affirmation and then for you to leave them alone. That's all they want. But we do it because we know that's about the kingdom, not about the summit church. We got close to 300 of our members serving overseas right now. And we give millions of dollars to the international mission board each year to help fund them and to other mission agencies. Of course, of course, we got to ask, are we planning those churches? And are we planning campuses as much in poor areas as we are in affluent ones? Now we're trying to be intentional with that. For example, we planted churches in red light districts in India and slum adjacent areas in the Dominican Republic. Closer to home, we planted campuses in several prisons and in many poorer urban areas. There've been a couple parts of our city that we became convinced after talking to people there that the style of our church would not reach them. So instead of putting a campus there, we funded an independent church plant there in that area instead of a campus. Right now we're funding a Farsi network of church plants over in Central Asia. Each week we host Hispanic, Arabic, and Mandarin language gatherings at our church each week. So we are trying to be intentional with this, but we got to stay vigilant. For example, we don't yet have a great strategy for reaching rural areas. 
Just going to remind you of something. I know we're going a little long. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. His entire sermon has been, your good acts triumphs over God's judgment. And so now to reassure everyone, hey, 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 don't, don't start questioning your salvation. Look at all that we have done. Look at all that we are doing. Look at us. Look at how merciful we are. Look at how good we are. Look at how gracious we are. Look at how giving we are. We're boasting because you have to boast because you got to make sure you, you know, you're saved, right? But we're going to keep all this in front of our church if we are truly gospel people. Here, here's one more, one, one and a half more, a little closer to home. How quickly do you identify and reach out to disconnected people in this church? Is this a church that's a welcoming community, especially for those who feel isolated elsewhere? Or do they ex- experience the same hostility in here that they would out there? I mean, y'all, who can forget that moving scene? In, in the movie 42, based on Jackie Robinson's life, or Jackie Robinson, remember this, he's standing all by himself on the baseball field as all those Cincinnati fans are calling him the worst names. Jackie was the only black player in the major league baseball, in the league. He was the recipient of the most despicable kinds of hatred. And there in this scene, as Jackie stands there all by himself, all alone, some of you remember this, one of his white teammates, Pee Wee Reese, just walks out to him, chewing tobacco, puts his arm around Jackie's shoulder, looks up into the stands and says, Jackie, I want them to know. I want them to know that you're my teammate and I stand with you. It is so moving. It's one of those, I'm glad we're in a dark theater so nobody can see my tears kind of moments. There is something powerful in showing love to somebody that the world says is not worthy of love. Church, this ought to be the place where people from various ethnicities and classes and backgrounds put their arms around each other and love each other. Is that what people experience here? Or do they experience the same isolation in here that they do out there? How quickly do you identify and reach out to disconnected people in the church? Or how about people who just look alone at church? Let's make this really practical, okay? How quickly do you reach out and talk to somebody who looks alone? I hear so many people complain that they went to some church and nobody ever talked to them. Rebecca McLaughlin, our friend here, she's been here several times. She says, an alone person in the church is an emergency. Your friends, she says, they can wait. Meet them at Chipotle later. At church, you need to find those people who look alone and introduce yourself to them. Then introduce them to somebody else. When somebody is sitting alone on their phone, Absolutely. Someone in comments said, I'm cringing knowing the context behind all these statements. Absolutely. When you put it in the context, this is fright. This is just like boast. And then like, hey, you better do this because if you don't, you're not going to stand in God's judgment because your acts is going to, you, you better get this down. If I was there, you should be like, everyone should have their notepads. Like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Make sure I say good things to, to I, I don't, I don't ignore people who are alone in the church. Make sure I do this. Make sure I'm feeding the homeless. Make sure I do this. Make sure I do this. Oh no. Oh no. I don't know if I'm going to stand in God's judgment because I don't know if I do enough of this. Everybody should be in complete and utter panic at this point. Okay, so yeah, let's continue. Let's continue. 
She says, you must approach them and you must ask them if they've got somebody to sit with. It should not be said that they came to church and left without anybody knowing their name. So what if we reserved, let's just say the first seven minutes right before church starts and the seven minutes right after just to do this. Wouldn't that be a way of demonstrating the gospel saying here you matter and you are important. You're not invisible in here. Do you know what kind of place this would become if we did just that? Honestly, it's one of the things that irritates me about you guys that cruise in 10 minutes late or leave five minutes before we dismiss. It's not that I'm mad that you're missing part of the service. It's that you treat church like it's a religious show instead of a welcoming family that you're a part of. When people say that the church is unfriendly and it feels like a big production, you're the problem. And don't even get me started on you guys that are still sitting at home in your pajamas streaming online when health-wise you can and should be back in church, okay? If you got health issues, I get it. That's fine. If you're traveling, I understand. But some of you are still sitting at home right now on your couch because you've reduced church to a program you watch, and that is not church at all. Hey, James is punchy. I get to be a little bit punchy too, okay? Here's the last one, the half one. That's the part that went viral. That part that went viral really is not that big a deal now that you listen to the rest of the sermon. <laughs> now, now, he's going off on people, and, and yeah, he can go off on people because I can see why he's going off on people. Hey, if you're not showing up to church, and you're not showing mercy, and you're not showing kindness, and you're sitting in your on your couch in pajamas, and you're not doing this, and you're not doing this, well, it's probably because you're not saved and you're going to go to hell, because the only way you're going to withstand God's judgment is you, you have to have enough acts of mercy that will triumph over God's judgment. This sermon is literally the epitome of what What's wrong with the American church? Because they've, forget everything. I, I, I talk about the problem with the American church is that's been politically hijacked. I talk about the the problem with the American church is because their people are biblically illiterate and theologically illiterate. I'm going to declare today the problem with the American church. They've abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ and turned it into a works law based system that produces nothing more than self-righteous condemning people who have to believe that they're doing all of these good things so that their good things will triumph over God's judgment as we've just heard in this sermon. Now let's bring it to a very sad, sad and pathetic conclusion. How quickly do you embrace people of questionable circumstances? You're the kind of person who, if somebody doesn't fit just the right profile, just the right pedigree, they come from questionable circumstances that you keep your distance from them. My quiet time reading this week took me through John 4. I was thinking about this woman that Jesus found by the well. I mean, y'all, let's think about it. Just put that in modern times. This is a woman who clearly did not know how to run a family. She'd had not one, not two, not three, not four, but five failed marriages. And she's shacking up now with a guy who's not even her husband. For many of us, this is the kind of woman you would whisper about or complain about. Not somebody you want in your small group. It's not somebody you want hanging around your family and influencing your kids. And yet, and yet Jesus made her the greatest evangelist in Samaria. And he even acknowledges that that's how we treat people. 
Well, if that's how we treat people, then just tell everyone you're going to hell. Because if you don't show mercy, you don't show kindness. And if you show partiality, you prove you were never saved because you have to do this in order to to be saved. Because when you stand before God, how are you going to enter into heaven? You better back that U-Haul truck up. You better, when you get to heaven, you better like, beep, 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 beep. Here you go, God. All of my good deeds. Look at all of my acts of mercy. And then God will be like, well, you get to come on in. Oh, wait, wait, where's your truck? I don't have a truck. I'm just a sinner. Wait, all, all you have is sin? That's all I have. Oh, but I do have something else, God the Father. What? I have the perfect righteousness of your son. Well, there's that's that's far better than this guy's U-Haul truck of of merciful works. I'll take the righteousness of my son over that U-Haul truck of man's filthy rags. But not according to J.D. Greer. You don't get in because of the work perfect perfection of Christ. You get in because of what you do. And he's going to say, no, 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 you don't get in because of what you do. You get in because what you do proves that you should get in. But uh, the whole thing is just, it's just saying the same thing. All right. We're just going to stop there. You can go finish. You can go look up the rest of that sermon. It's J.D. Greer. Wasn't the one preached this Sunday. It was the one preached the Sunday before. I don't even remember the name of it. Uh, oh, the kind of people who shouldn't come to church, I think is the name of it. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry this went 84 minutes. I'm just, I'm just, when we do sermon reviews, one of the things I love is that I don't know what's coming because I don't listen to it before. I don't like this to be rehearsed. But on the other hand, sometimes it's so overwhelming because I don't know what's coming. And so I, in my mind, I'm like, let's get to where he rebukes the people. Now, I don't even really care that he rebuked the people because he already destroyed the people. If the people are even remotely honest with themselves, they're going to go home going, I'm going to hell. I'm just going straight to hell. I I don't even know why. You know why? I am just going to sit at home in my pajamas on the couch and I'm probably going to stream some, I'm probably going to stream Netflix because I'm going to hell. There's no point in even worrying about this Christian stuff because there's no way my mer- my acts of mercy are going to try the perfect judgment of God. There's no way. There's just no way. So why even bother going to, why even bother doing anything? Just pack up and go to Vegas, drink, get a couple of prostitutes and and just do whatever you want to do. Gamble, drugs, because none of it really matters. I mean, literally, he just said, you're, you got to basically work your way into heaven. Now, he would say, no, no, no. I didn't say you have to work your way into heaven. I said your works will prove whether you are, are, are going to heaven. But you just literally said that it's my acts of mercy that triumph over God's judgment. So you, you, oh man, you've destroyed the gospel. That's it. I don't, I don't care anything else JD Greer has ever said that people criticize. I've always tried to be fair. I've always tried to give him the opportunity. Anytime there's a sermon, by J.D. Greer that goes viral. I've, I've reviewed multiple, when he got in trouble for all the things he supposedly said in regards to homosexuality. I reviewed, I think, two or three of his sermons. I've always tried to be fair. But in this particular case, his own words tell us that he no longer believes in the gospel of historical biblical Christianity. He does not believe in a gospel based off an imputed righteousness. He believes on a gospel based off an infused righteousness and that you're going to stand before God and you're going to get in and you're going to overcome God's judgment based 
on the acts of mercy you have done. And now people, if you ever question why I've spent 90 plus hours doing the law and gospel series, now you know why. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. At this point, I am just, I don't know. I don't have any words. I would love to get your, I would love for you to maybe be more articulate and explain your reaction to this. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. I'm going to take a long break and then maybe we'll get some more done today. I thought I was going to get like a whole bunch of things done today, but man, I may need, I may have PTSD and need a couple of years of recovery after this. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.